welcome to or welcome back to the Elevate Podcast, whichever is for you. This is a podcast for athletes and those who coach them. I am Tyler Johnson. This podcast, we hope, is here to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day. If so, you are in the right place. My guest this episode was featured in an August issue of Sports Illustrated. He's a former college baseball player, a professional speaker, yoga instructor, and personal development coach, leading classes, workshops, and seminars all around the world. His purpose is to help people find theirs. He also works with some of the top professional athletes in the world on mindset, life coaching, and mindfulness. He's also an ambassador for Luluman and works directly on their mindful performance team as both a yoga and meditation teacher. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Donnie Starkins. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you and, and share a little bit about your story and your journey, um, the work you're doing now. Um, I think it's uh, something that's so needed. Uh, my athletic days are, are kind of faded, but uh, yoga days are still young in that respect. But uh, for those that might not know much about you, uh, our listeners, talk, can you talk a little bit about your athletic journey? Uh, maybe from a youngster into uh, kind of the college athletics? Absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up here in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, where I currently live. I live in Scottsdale, but it's all kind of one big city. Um, Grew up my entire life. Basically, my life revolved around athletics. I played soccer, um, football, and baseball all the way up until high school. High school, I played football in baseball. Um, I played in high school. I played quarterback. I played, we were for a small, like medium to size, medium to large size school. So I played quarterback and um, free safety and, and was also the kicker on the team and then played baseball also. And baseball really is where um, my most passion was and where I tasted the most success played baseball, um, got a, ended up starting my college career at Scottsdale Community College, played two years there, got a, a pretty decent scholarship to University of Nebraska. So I transferred there my junior year, played in the Big 12. It was an awesome season, but um, being from Arizona and playing year round and being outside um, in the winter, practicing every single day, um, Nebraska was a bit of a culture shock for me even though it was an amazing experience. So I ended up um, transferring back to Arizona State my senior year. I played in 15 games in my, my senior year, and then I had what was my fifth surgery on my left knee, and that surgery was a big one. It was a cadaver transplant of my meniscus. Wow. It was, uh, yeah, that, that ended my baseball career the day after that surgery. <laughs> Part of your journey you're willing to talk about uh, kind of from from post-surgeries um, that led to some difficult times that you've overcome and, and part of your journey and still uh, sharing with others on, on, on how they can recover. Can you talk a little bit about how the toll of those surgeries, what that led to? Yeah, so um, the big surgery that I have. So, you know, I'm playing baseball at a fairly high level all the way until my senior year. I have this surgery leading up to the surgery. Um, 
I had an option to either have this procedure done. It was the cadaver transplant, getting um, bone tissue and cartilage, a graft from a donor. Um, the, I was the first person in Arizona to ever have this surgery. It had wow. been done eight times across the country and been successful, but I was somewhat of a guinea pig here in Arizona. Um, but the doctor assured me that if all went well, it would be like having a new knee and I'd be back playing. Even the possibility was there, but man, there was no way the day, the next day I woke up from that surgery, um, from the massive, uh, signs of, of the scars and the trauma. And then just the, the pain, the unbearable pain I was in, I knew baseball was over for me. Um, in that moment. And, you know, when you have a, a big surgery like that, you are prescribed a decent amount of pain, painkillers. And I was prescribed actually 80 Percocet a week for a month straight. And honestly, still not getting much reprieve from the pain. I mean, I was in so much pain from this surgery, even a month after the surgery, still like bedridden, had to drop out of my classes my senior year, my thought leading up to the surgery was, oh, finals are coming up. Like, I, I'm not going to have anything to do, so I'll just have the surgery and study. I was so messed up, I couldn't even do that. So I ended up having to drop out of those classes my senior year. Um, but yeah, 80 Percocet a week, and then the doctor cut me off cold turkey. Um, and I did turn the corner pain-wise about a month and a half later. Two months later, my mom was taking care of me. I moved back in with... Um, I moved in with some friends and uh, from that point on when baseball was no longer there, uh, things started to get really messy. I, I, I moved in um, to a place where one of my roommates actually was a pharmacy tech and was stealing massive amount of painkillers from, um, from, from where he was working and it just, it was a, the perfect storm to say the least. Yeah, it's... Uh sadly when an athlete behind me in college sports similar but diff different surgery but uh the the pain led him to uh he didn't have a roommate pharmacist but he uh had the doctor's script pad and that led to uh self self-medicating some additional there um was there a turning point that kind of helped you uh recovery and, and kind of lead you to kind of some of the work you're doing now? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, rock bottom was the turning point and um, had a couple of them. But really, you know, finally, I mean, the the I prescription pills were really what had its grip on me. So Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, the big ones, but also Xanax and Valium. Like if I didn't have a certain amount of one, I would take another one. And you know, I was going to a psychiatrist, but really exaggerating on the level of anxiety and not letting him know about this other yeah, issue yeah. I had with pain pills. So I was kind of like doctor shopping and just really living my life around where I could get my next um, prescription. So it, it was just so much bad stuff happened. I mean, not like, like, not like crazy, crazy bad, but just bad decisions, hurting family, um, just not being a good person. And finally, um, I just had to surrender. And the, the, the addiction had beaten me so bad. I finally became willing. I tried to do it. Like I, you know, my parents want me to go to rehab and I overdosed once in Rocky Point, Mexico. 
Um, and still that next day when I, my, my brother and brother-in-law had to pick me up from the emergency room in Mexico, drive from Arizona to come get me. And yet the next day I was not convinced I had a problem. So, or I wasn't ready to go to rehab, that's for sure. So I would go to like 12 step meetings, NA, NA, or NA and AA, but it was really just to keep my parents off my back. So I didn't have to stop my life and go to treatment for 30 days because God, I had so much amazing stuff going on for me at the time. But that stigma of having to go do something like that, like I just, I just wasn't ready. But when I finally was ready, I remember being beaten down so bad. I checked myself into treatment with my help of my family. And I just said, you know, laying there in that first day in treatment going, God, tell me what I need to do to get it right this time. Just tell me I will do it. And day one in treatment, 7 p.m., two guys come in and they're bringing in a meeting to the treatment center. This one happens to be a PA meeting, Pills Anonymous. And they start saying things like, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps with that sponsor, be of service. And I finally heard it. Now, I'd been going to meetings before and they'd been saying those same things, but I wasn't listening. It's like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I heard it and I knew what I needed to do after day one in treatment. Like I could have left and, but I needed, there was therapy and other stuff, but I, I knew what I needed to do. Um, and, and then I just took that willingness and really ran with it for three years straight, all in, started to do things um, really kind of half-ass and uh, um, got complacent in my sobriety three years in, stopped going to meetings, stopped staying plugged into the men in my life that are also in sobriety. And I end up having a very simple procedure on my right knee, uh, a, a knee surgery, but nothing compared to these other ones. Yeah. And um, I woke up from the surgery and I loved the way that I felt. And six days later, I was in the doctor's office um, exaggerating the levels of pain. And so I was right back in my relapse and that relapse lasted about eight months. Just, you know, nothing like nothing like the first times, but still pretty bad. And I knew I just needed, I I knew I needed to go to detox for five days and just get it out. And I'd go all in again. And that's exactly what I did. I had my brother drive me to a detox on May 5th, 2013. And I've been uh, sober since then. So seven and a half years on top of that three. Um, But that, that relapse in between was really, it messed with me for a while, but today it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it reminds me the work will never stop. Yeah. Where uh, did yoga and mindfulness come into your life? And what role has that, that played? Well, um, I, you can thank my mom for that. My mom at my rock bottom was always telling me how I needed to go to yoga because my body was banged up, favoring my left leg for 15 years. Um, my right side, right hip, low back, everything was just pretty messed up. And so she kept saying, you need to go to yoga. And I would always tell her yoga's for girls and hippies. I'm not doing that crap. Uh, um, but finally I went once to a gym yoga class at 24 hour fitness. And I remember during the class just saying, I will do this the rest of my life from the physical standpoint, just the reprieve I was getting from my low back and my hips. Um, I just knew I would do it the rest of my life. But little did I know what it would do for my mind and soul as I continued um, on my yoga journey to the point where I wanted to go to teacher training, not in the beginning necessarily to be a teacher, but just to learn the lineage, to learn anatomy, to learn everything about it. But a week into treatment or into uh, teacher training, 
And I was like, I want to be a teacher. I want to share the love. So then I got into to teaching, to teaching yoga um, and slowly um, worked my way out of corporate America and did the complete leap into full-time yoga teaching, teaching meditation and mindfulness, which led to also life coaching and personal development. And that's kind of now I weave it all into some of my programs. Very cool. Uh, I didn't come across yoga or mindfulness till after my, my college football days. My wife had this, I had some of the same thoughts you did about going to a yoga class, uh, who it was for and, and what it was, uh, would be, but, uh, loved it. I had a, during my college football, had a, a lumbar injury, um, over it kind of came that but yoga was good and then taught me about the breath which i knew nothing about as an athlete which made me feel foolish <laughs> looking back that to, to play division one football or any athletics and to not know how to use our breath or um navigate some of that headspace utilizing our breath what can you say when it comes to kind of breath work or mindfulness why such people that might have a, a hesitation thought give it a little effort. Well, if you know, what's tied into mindfulness is meditation and the common, I, you know, as a teacher of meditation, the common response to somebody that doesn't meditate will say to me, I can't meditate. My mind never stops thinking. My response is nobody's does. Nobody's mind start, start, stops thinking, but we can practice and we can give our minds something to focus on. Single point of focus is really the easiest way to practice mindfulness or meditation. Focus on your breath. You know, the, it's interesting where in um, other cultures um, and even in like, if you were a child growing up as a monk, the first thing they teach you is how to breathe, not like whatever math or the, the alphabet or whatever they learn that they actually learn to breathe. And I always say like, when we learn how to breathe the right way, we learn how to think the right way. And when we learn how to think the right way, we can start to live the right way. And the breath is the one thing that, um, that gives us life. And it was, it was there the very first moment we arrived. And the very last thing we'll do is take our last breath and our legacy will begin. So, so many people go their entire lives with no relationship to this one thing that gives us life. And that's, and that's the breath. So common response is my mind never stops thinking. Another one is I don't have time, which I have, I chuckle cause that's what I used to say. But if we only knew or those that were saying that knew that it actually gives you more time um, because you're not focusing your energy on things that you don't have control over. So it actually mm -hmm. opens up time and energy and awareness. So I think overthinking the process of meditation instead of just being consistent and doing it and finding a practice that works for you. It's a great advice. Uh, if you go to Donnie's website, which we'll have linked up here, uh, you still have the 10 meditations that they, people can get for free. Absolutely. 10 meditations for tough times. Um, there's, there's meditations. There's a lot of free resources on my website. Yeah. That you can uh, that you can grab. I have an online um, subscription for meditation and yoga that has hundreds of hours of different meditation videos and yoga flows and two live classes that I do a week that also come with that subscription. So plenty of uh, resources and uh, and practices out there. 
I've done the, the 10 meditations. I'll have to go back and dig into some more, but uh, we'll have that linked up here. So go check those out. Uh, for those athletes or coaches that might be hesitant to try yoga or have their teams bring in a yoga instructor to do some of this stuff that maybe they think was for hippies or whatever and uh, gurus and how can it be serviceable to the, the every man, every woman athlete, yoga, breath work, mindfulness, and this, this, that. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I believe that, um, you know, there's the common response. So some, someone that never has practiced specifically men will say, I can't do yoga. I can't even touch my toes. And I would say, yeah, you can just bend your knees. So it's like, they'll say, I'm not flexible. Right. And it's like, oh, well, are you talking about being flexible mentally or physically? Because <laughs> physically shouldn't matter. And what it does really teach us um, with yoga, well, it teaches us a lot. But I think some of it, the physical aspects of flexibility and moving stuck energy, things like our old traumas and pasts that, that lie heavy in the body. These are the things that weigh the body down. So yoga, so much of it is about achieving freedom and freeing us from all the stressors and all the things that we take on on a daily basis that weigh the body down. As an athlete, it teaches us focus. You know, you have meditation, but then yoga becomes this moving meditation where we can focus on the breath and body moving together as one. So we get more in our bodies and we're able to really train the mind to focus on the present moment and not being stuck in the past, being maybe jammed up on regret or worried about our past performance and not time traveling into the future, but really focusing on the only moment that matters. And that's, that's this moment. Also, it teaches us to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Not all those yoga position postures are comfortable. So to be able to embrace discomfort and find comfort in it through the breath, knowing that the breath will get us through anything and we can use the breath to work through some of that stickiness and work through and actually just quiet down the noise of the mind. You, uh, careers led you to work with some, uh, NFL elite athletes. Uh, is there a lesson that as you teach them that you've learned from working with some other top athletes that they've taught you in return? Yeah, you know, I think some of the high-level athletes that I work with, what my what I've noticed is, um, you know, we're all pulled in a thousand different directions by a bunch of different types of people and stressors. Um, a lot of high-level athletes, it's so important for them to have their center because they have a lot of distractions, mm -hmm. um, people, family. Um, agents, scouts, like all these different people wanting their attention, wanting something, wanting their money, yeah. wanting something um, from them. And if we don't have a way to know who we are and find our, find our center and find our way back home, we will just get caught up in all of that. So to be able to almost just have a practice that allows us to come back, come back to our center, go within to find it, not having to seek outside or seek um, external validation, which they get plenty of that. Um, but it's not at the essence, that's not who they are, right? That's just what people, who people think they are. So I believe meditation and yoga really allows us to chip away at some of the things that get in the way 
of us being the highest version of ourselves. And there's a lot of ego that can get in the way. And so when we're able to dissolve that and just let go and really come back to our truth and figure out what's most important to us and what our core values are, like all that other noise and stuff just falls away. So it's way beyond physical. I'm not even talking about any of the physical stuff because there's so much more there um, for all of us, whether you're a high level athlete or you're a 15 year old um, gymnast, it doesn't matter. You know, it, this is a, this is a consistent practice. That's for everybody. Talked about getting back to that, that core. Uh, I think, I think don't really had that idea developed when I was a, a younger student athlete. Um, seeing how I see it as important now, can you talk a little bit how for student athletes or coaches to know what your core values are, to learn to articulate them, but perhaps also to have the flexibility to learn and evolve from them? Absolutely. Well, I mean, our core values are really an essential part of who we are. They are what we stand for, what we believe in. Um, and living into those core values, we're actually able to make every decision based on our core values. So when we figure out who we are, we also know who we are not. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is like when we're rooted and we make every decision off our core values, we can't make wrong decisions. We have more confidence. We're not having people tell us who we are or who we need to be. We're not conforming to what society says we need to be or what we need to have in place in order to be happy. We live by those core values. And with that comes so much more self-confidence because we're not worried about what anybody else thinks. We can adapt a role model mindset in a positive way and know that people are watching us and people are counting on us, um, but using it as a way to um, fuel us into action and not like giving our power away because we're worried about what somebody else thinks about us. So man, living those core values, again, athlete or non-athlete, this is so important to make sure that we have those in place So we can also set more goals around those values. So we can set boundaries around those values. So everything comes back to figuring out who we are and why it's important to be living in those core values. I like they brought up the boundaries about them. Uh, Because I think sometimes it's the things that we need to eliminate, the things we need to stop doing that that can be most critical. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I just feel like, you know, with boundaries. So if we go back to values, um, values are what we believe uh, in and and they drive how we work. They're also going to, if we're rooted in our values, we were able to know like what, who's allowed to come into our life and who's not. These, this is where boundaries are set with, with boundaries. Like if we bounce, when our values get like stepped on, basically a boundary has been crossed. So if you value integrity or honesty, and that's like a big one for you, and you have somebody in your life that isn't being honest, then it's really easy to know like my boundary has been crossed. I have a process. I I can speak my voice. I can cut that person out of my life when we stay rooted in those values. And they, they also help us like deeply prioritize, um, what we should do when we come against an uncomfortable situation. So if one of our values is family, 
and I don't know, some, some type of situation comes up and it's possibly compromising that, it's so much easier to make decisions when you're rooted in those values. And they, they, just, they also really um, help us just influence really every decision that we make on the field, on the court, off the court. But um, yeah, boundaries, I mean, you know, I feel like if we are getting our boundaries stepped on all the time, we can become very resentful. We, so basically what I say is boundary, we teach people how to treat us. So if you don't have any boundaries, you're teaching everybody else how to treat you and you will let people walk all over you. I also believe that parenting, if you're a parent out there, if, if you're a parent and you're not living in integrity to your core values, your children will have no backbone at all because they're watching you live out of alignment and not have those. So as a parent, it's good motivation to live those core values so your children have strength and have that backbone and know how to stand up for what they believe in. Well said. Uh, how do you define success? Oh, wow. Um, I feel like for me, success is living a living your purpose, living a purpose-driven life. Um, in order to do that, I think we have to get really clear on what our natural gifts and talents are. Everybody's might be different, but really getting clear on those things that, that set your soul on fire, those things that come easy to you, the things that your friends and family might um, ask you for help for, those, those things that have just always been there and how we implement those. So I say like our purpose is not static. It's not like you dev yeah. define your purpose statement and that's your purpose the rest of your life. Our purpose is dynamic. It's fluid. Now our natural gifts and talents those are pretty consistent. Those have been with us for a while. How we implement those and how we can be of service to others by using those, to me, that's success. That's a purpose-driven life. It's about service. It's, you know, the opposite when, when, if I go back to my addiction where it's all about selfishness and self-centeredness. And for anybody in 12-step in stuff that's done a, a fourth step and you're really getting clear on your character defects, um, mine was all about selfishness and self-centeredness. The antidote to selfishness is selflessness to go serve. And honestly, service, that's the, one of the greatest gifts recovery has given me is just the opportunity to be of service. And it makes me so much happier. If I'm in self-pity or in a funk and I just go help somebody else, I immediately always feel better. So success is, is service in action and really using your natural gifts and talents to help others. That to me is like success beyond, you know, beyond anything I could imagine. And that's where, where I strive to be every single day. Well, I'm sure someone listening will get some great impact from this. So thanks for being of service on this podcast. Yeah, uh, if you could, Get back in a time machine and go visit 16-year-old self. Uh, from your journey and all the things you've learned, what's the one truth you'd want to tell 16-year-old you? Whew. Um, that's a great question. I think for me, most importantly, it's to not worry about what other people think about you. 
Um, I think for so many years, especially being an athlete um, and everything performance-based. So as a baseball player, you perform, you make the team, you, you're caring about what your coach thinks because he's the one that's going to say, hey, you make the team, you make right. the team, you make the starting lineup. Now you're in the starting lineup and now you've got scouts and other people watching your performance. And I think that was rooted in me. And I think just naturally, I think most of us give our power away by worrying about what other people think about us. And especially at 16 years old, that's probably all I cared about. And so when it comes back to the values and just knowing who I am and what I stand for, that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If I'm living my truth and living in integrity, like all the opinions and all of what anybody else is thinking about me, that just falls away. And it allows me to focus on really what matters and the things that I can control. So I think that's, that's really a huge one for me. And I, I, I thought, I think it would have brought so much more peace and integrity and not falling into peer pressure and all the things to, to be cool and to be accepted because, you know, self-sabotage, one of the most common forms of self-sabotage is desire and acceptance. And, you know, I live in Phoenix, Scottsdale area, which can look like a very uh, materialistic world. And so you see it happening all the time and I still fall victim to it, but I'm so much better than I used to be. And I think um, recovery and really being humbled. I think if I wouldn't have gone through my own trials and struggles, um, I probably would have thought success was all material. Get the good job, get the good car, get the house, get the money in the bank account. Um, and I, I coach and know plenty of people with plenty of money who are absolutely miserable. And so, um, to know that it's, it's so much more than that to help others. And it's really cool that I can actually, uh, use my mess as my message and, and, and like all the stuff I did, the terrible decisions, the pain I put my family through that, that can actually help others today is like, mind-blowing to me and it's so freaking cool because it frees me from my past of all the guilt and the shame because all I got to do is just live it and carry the message by just sharing my story sharing what my life was like what happened and what my life is like now um and the freedom I can have in my life as long as I stay in fit spiritual condition <laughs>